0: But well, we found that some of our old-time mustangers weren't increasing their computer skills. We were hiring new people in that were way better than our current people. So we offered them classes, the ones that wouldn't take it. We said, I know you've been here 10 years, but you no longer match us. You've got to go. They would go find a job, and many of them, two years later, would come back after they got those skills. But it was like a wake-up call
1: Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited about today's guest. Bill Higgs is the founder of Mustang Engineering, which went from zero to one billion dollars in revenue based in a market differentiated culture. Bill is known as the King of Culture, and he is a Forbes author and contributor. We're going to talk about his new book, Culture Code Champions. And there's so many things we're going to get into. Bill's got an amazing story. Welcome to the show. I'm so grateful we get to have this chat today.
0: Dr. Richard, this is going to be fun. Look forward to
1: it. And then we're actually doing this in person instead of doing it over the internet like every other podcaster. So this is absolutely a blast for me. Bill, one of the things that I love to talk to people about is is what really was behind their why? Like, why did you start doing the things that you do? Because you brought culture into organizations where nobody had really been doing that before. Is that something that you
0: took from when you were young? Where did that begin for you? Well, I started being what I call being other-oriented maybe when I was like nine years old. I just noticed that adults all seemed to gloom me. And so I decided I'm just going to start smiling at adults. How can they not smile at a smiling kid? And so for 30 seconds out of their day, they were going to be smiling. And that's sort of been my go-to thing for a lot of time. Went through Boy Scouts, West Point, into the Army. Got into the civilian world. And I noticed, again, that people just weren't bonding with each other. And so I went in the oil patch in Houston during the boom. And in the boom, there was a saying, it was, uh, drive fast and freeze a Yankee. <laughs>
1: <laughs> tell, us, tell us more about that. So, we'll need some explanation.
0: Because we had all the oil, we had all the gas. We don't need to send it up. North. All right, I get it. That's, but, that's... but we were in a boom. And uh, all the drafters were driving Cadillacs, those before Lexus. But two years later, we went into a bust. So oil went from $28 a barrel to five dollars a barrel hard to imagine nowadays but it went that low and oil companies just cut huge chunk of their staff and that trickled down through the whole industry and if you finished a job in an engineering firm you were let go and the saying became uh, stay alive till 85 because this everything went down in 82 well in 85 Oil companies cut another twenty percent out of their staff. Oil had gone up to fifteen dollars a barrel. Now it's at three dollars and fifty cents a barrel, and it was really bad. Everybody kept their books in boxes. Drafters had their boxes on wheels, so you were ready to move to where a project was. There was now no loyalty between companies and people, or between the oil companies and the engineering firms. And the saying became. It'll be heaven in 87. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's like hope springs eternal. But I took like a 30% pay cut in 85 just to stay where I was. Got with two other guys and we said, man, we need to go start our own firm. And we need to change this culture in the industry because if you felt like you couldn't control the oil price and that affected your living, now all you could do is focus on yourself. So the oil company person wanted to keep their job. Engineer wanted to keep their job. The suppliers, they wanted to keep theirs. Everybody was all win-lose contracting. I win, you lose, and you had to figure out how to win. So when we started Mustang Engineering, I said, man, we, made a, we sat down and made a list of things we didn't like in the engineering firm while we were employees. Because the guys that started that firm were just like us. We know they were idealistic when they started, but now they were cutting people whenever the job stopped. So we made a list of things, and I said, every quarter, let's look at this list and see if we're becoming them, or are we going to stay where we want to be and be different? And the uh, the first thing I remember, we were buying our furniture at ten cents on the dollar from three engineering firms that were closing. Mm-hmm. They were doing exactly what we were starting an engineering firm to do. So this is not a good thing. But one of our engineers was putting a book on a shelf one day, and the whole shelf collapsed down around him. He's got books up to his knees. I come running out of my office and said, oh, we need to go build bookshelves. And I'm a wood butcher. So I invited everybody, like 20 people, over to my house for a weekend. I said, we're going to build bookshelves that will hold up these heavy engineering manuals. Well, everybody came and are all working in the driveway. They're meeting my neighbors. I'm making sawdust. My two partners are staining things. One of them got stain all over them. The other one's pretty neat. And uh, we heard these people talking. They're going, man, I've, I've done stuff like this for the Houston Rodeo or the Boy Scouts or for church, but never at a company. I've never been to an owner's house. He like, man, these guys are all right. And we're only like four months old at this point when we're doing these bookshelves. And the light bulb went off for me. And I said, I think we could do this culture and build an organization that people want to join and want to be part of. But I've got to figure out how to keep work in front of them. Because if a person doesn't have a job that they're going to move to, they're going to be looking and listening to what's out there. And I used to say, you know, old company it all started at coffee bar coffee bar you get your coffee and say hey where'd that last job go what company got it hey what are they paying over there and it would like spiral you down and then you go back to your office down the hallway and what i wanted to do was change that coffee bar and put fun pictures activities and what's going on and spiral people's attitude up and see if we could just be more gung-ho but it, it all came down to what i call job on the corner of the desk so if i put a job on the corner of the desk for an engineer that's like the new bright shiny object they want to get on that project so i say hurry up and finish what you're on and get on this project all of a sudden we're the engineering firm in the industry because we finish work other jobs would never finish because people knew if they finished they were gone so they just drag them out so we started finishing projects and oil companies started finding us, and that's how we just started to change it. And to me, I felt, "Hey, we're going to be able to do this thing."
1: You're really one of the first guys that took an intentional look at creating and molding workplace culture. So you've been you've been doing this for decades now and yeah, here 30 plus years, 30 plus years. And, you know, as I said in the year intro that Forbes has recognized you as is their representative for workplace culture. Mm-hmm. So for somebody listening to the show, who's either in the process of building an organization or has done so uh, outside of sitting around with friends and staining bookshelves and, and knocking them down, talk to us about some of the steps one could take to, to build
0: and scale that culture in an organization well one of the things i just mentioned i call it selling while the shop is full so most organizations when they get loaded up with work they stop selling because the ops people say stop selling we're we're up to here we're up to our chin in work we've got to work on figuring it out and what happens you can't turn sales on and off it's impossible so you're going to force yourself into a downturn of your own making by stopping selling and then trying to start selling. So what I felt was the only way a a culture can blossom is if a person feels they have job security. Because if they have job security, they know they're taking care of the mortgage, they're taking care of their family, their pain is less, and they don't have to worry about those things. If they're worried about a job and paying the mortgage and taking care of their family, they're not going to spend any time with your culture initiatives so the first thing to me is you got to be selling while the shop is full keep a backlog and say hey ops suck it up (laughs) if you're a little overloaded you got to figure out how to do it in our case since i became sort of the sales dude and i would always sell that one project too much then my partner would say okay now you're in ops (laughs) try to slow me down but uh then I'd have to run a project with all the scrap people that he could cobble together from other projects, but it helped me. I knew what was going on with those projects and, and I was helping to bring some people up, but I also was cheating. I had, uh, because I was the only guy I was doing, I was doing the payroll for the first seven years. I was selling running a project. I got 17 vendor salesmen helping me. So these were like, the top salesmen in the industry selling equipment type things. And I said, hey, when you go into a client and they've got a project, they're going to ask you where the good engineering resources are. I said, just put us in the same sentence with Brown and Root, and McDermott, and these names that the client knows, stick our name in that same sentence. I call it same sentence sales. And then when you come out of that office, give me a call. And they would do it. And I, I know they're going to call the other companies, but they're going to talk to some purchasing person down way in the bowels of McDermott. It's never going to get to management. they call calling me. I'm like the guy that wants to put bread on the table. Right. And so I'd get that call. And boom. I'm calling that client up. Cold call didn't matter. But uh, it allowed me to get in early. And I, even though my partner had sucked me into doing ops, I had 17 people out there that were feeding me. And so I would get, uh, I I call it rifle shot sales instead of sort of a scatter gun from that call. Like I remember a guy calling me Thursday afternoon. He'd gone into Conquest, a little oil company. And they had bought two 30-year-old platforms. We did offshore oil platforms. 30-year-old platforms from Shell. And he wanted to add compression to them, but he didn't, didn't know if they could hold it. So the compressor salesman comes out, calls me up. Thursday afternoon, 4.30, I call that client. Never met him before in my life. And it was Tom Robbie. And he says, wow, how would you find out about this? I said, well, I know such and such person. Well, he had a lot of respect for that salesperson. He could tell I had a great relationship with that salesperson. So immediately we had a little connection. I said, hey, can I come talk to you about this compressor edition? He said, sure. I said, how about tomorrow? Like call it strike while the iron of courage is hot. I mean, I've got him on the phone. So we book it for Friday afternoon. And he, he knows I'm serious because nobody goes downtown Houston Friday afternoon. Not happening. It's gridlocked down there. But what we did is we stayed up till three in the morning and we put some old platforms on a computer and figure out how to modify it and evaluate them for for a compressor edition. When we went to see him, we pulled that computer up. And this is back when PCs were just getting powerful enough mm-hmm. to do it. And we had it right there. And so in real time, he'd say, well, what if this happened? And boom, we'd show him how it worked. That's another car. Brought other people in and said, he has got some questions. We showed him how the computer would solve it and how we would evaluate it. He awarded us the project before we walked out. Outstanding. So it never got out there into the industry. Ops might be loaded up. It's like deal with it, figure out how to do it. But selling while a shop is full to me is a big step.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. Well, and, and I want to talk about more steps, and, and I expect that as we get into these, you're going to have more sayings and expressions, <laughs> which I can't wait to hear. Uh, freezing the Yankee, I think, is still <laughs> my favorite one so far. But I wanted to ask you this question in all seriousness. Okay. Uh, there, There is a prevailing wind that a lot of people are starting to identify in the corporate space now, where we're moving towards a gig economy, and... When we move to a gig economy where essentially the whole world is a contractor, how do you build a culture if that's the way that this is going? So as we are transitioning at this point into that gig economy, talk to us about how we can apply the concepts of culture to still maintain team and, and get everybody excited about what they're doing, despite the fact that everybody's kind of out for themselves in that regard.
0: I think it's still going to come down to creating those personal relationships. So even though you're bidding and it seems very sterile and pristine, you've got to break through that and get the personal one-on-one connections because that's going to differentiate you. And I've really found that if you can get in front of the decision makers, and one of our things was... uh, We were keeping our teams together long-term so they knew how their communications were good internally. But then when I would get into a bid process and I'd get in front of the decision makers, at that point, uh, every bid comes down to a a tie. They'll get it down to two because the client doesn't know if one person will go out of business (laughs) in the next two weeks or they'll get loaded and can't handle it. So they got to keep their options open right down to the 11th hour. They'll keep two. And then how do you win that tie? And normally you've played all of your cards through the bid process to get to that point. And what I would normally try to tip the scale. We had a saying in the army that energy and enthusiasm is a force multiplier. So if you have a gung ho team, it's going to be a force multiplier compared to somebody else. And what I would show them is, hey, this team's been together for six years, but our energy and enthusiasm, you're not going to have to pull us along or try to push us. We're going to be pulling that rope hard, and you just have to guide us. And for a client, that's huge comfort because when you're awarding that contract, you don't know if this is going to be a problem child or that this contract's just going to go smooth and they're going to pull it. So. For me, it's getting in front of them and trying to break that tie.
1: Makes perfect sense. And and I want to step back. I know you're a best-selling author, and uh, among all the things that you're doing, you've got this new book coming out that that Forbes is promoting, Culture Code Champions. Talk to us about what was your impetus for writing that book?
0: Well, uh, (laughs) it was really my kids. (laughs) So My kids... Saw how hard we worked. Our startup was unbelievable. My daughter says that she was raised by the bug exterminator, who actually came once a quarter in Houston. I don't know why she says that to people, but my wife was an RN. I was starting this engineering firm. We went without pay for six months as our sweat equity. We each put $5,000 in to start it. No bank would touch us because we were in the oil patch during the downturn. So my wife. Is working at seven hospitals. I'm working twenty four seven. So our son's sort of raising our daughter, I think. But uh, we always had the time for him. We were there for all the games. I was assistant anything, scoutmaster, assistant volleyball coach, whatever. So when I was there, I was available for the kids. But I wrote a book to try and take the Mustang culture to the world, called Mustang: The Story and it's Sort of the History of Mustang. But my kids came to me, they both started their own companies, and they said, Dad, all these gold nuggets we learned growing up with you, these things you would say like uh, don't limit your options or don't increment to a bad place, they're in there, but they're not obvious. you got to dig them out. You need to write a business book that's just all the gold nuggets. It shows people how to create this culture because they had gone and created that same culture in their companies and had that connected culture. So that was the impetus to do it. I wanted to uh, be able to take this culture because it changed lives. Our fourth year at the Christmas party, a spouse came up to me and grabbed me by the shoulders, looked me in the eye said, Bill, focus on me. I want to tell you that it was their husband or wife, their spouse, had changed since coming to Mustang. They like to get up in the morning. They're ready to go to work. They come home. They still have energy. They're engaging with the family. They're talking about... Going to church on Sunday and working with the Boy Scouts. They're like a total new person. So, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And it just sent chills up and down my spine because when we started the company, there was nobody taking care of anybody in the industry. And here we were four years in and we were changing lives and people could see that continuity and staying at the same company. But the big thing was, we had started changing the contracting between the oil companies and the engineering to where it was now a win win contract. And we were changing our contracting with our suppliers where it was win win. And we were actually eight years in, we were actually getting better contracts from oil companies to the suppliers. So we were creating win win contracting across the industry. We had to get it internally, we had to get our branding, get that team mentality, but then make that bigger team a whole industry. And so really my, my why on this book is to show that here's the steps. So I was able to boil out the steps of what we did. And what we found is any initiative we had, if we didn't have a champion for it, the half-life was about six weeks and that initiative would be going down. And by 12 weeks, it was gone and we had to start all over again we found if we assigned a champion to something we wanted done and it was part of their job then man we could get better and better we could create it as a habit within the company so the seven steps that i've got i want companies organizations to assign a champion to each one and you do them in a certain order and you'll build a culture it'll take 18 to 24 months to move your culture but you can change your current culture and for us it went big time to the bottom line for every organization you change this culture and you stop changing people all the time your bottom line is going to go up two to three percent so if you're making a five percent bottom line it's going to go to seven to eight for us the industry was four percent we were in the 18 to 22 percent which just blew people's mind but it was the efficiencies that we had due to that culture so that's what i'm trying to take we took it to the world. Have offices around the world with that culture. I know it it works. And we just want to get a lot of people trying to do it. I love that. And so you've got
1: these seven steps that are done in sequence. Take mm-hmm. us through some of these. Take us through the, the tenets of these steps.
0: Well, the first one is opening up the communication top to bottom in the organization. So in the army, it's like I knew all my privates, all my sergeants, all my lieutenants. I talked to them regularly. When we'd be out on a mission and they're digging a trench to stop a thing. I'd get right down in there with my captain bars on and I'd grab a shovel and I'd be shoveling with the private and talking to them about how their world was. But that's the way the Army was. You take care of everybody top to bottom. Civilian world, you need to do the same thing, that management by wandering around, get out there in the organization, talking to people. But then we also got people together outside of work for parties or get togethers or a charity event. And at those, we would all our managers all the way up and down the line, but they'd be mingling. So like when we did the the bookshelves, everybody was mingling and getting to know each other's hobbies and their families and their kids. So when we would get together, there was a lot of things to talk about. But that communication then spilled into work to where now if somebody saw something was wrong, even though they were a drafter and this is god over here this structural engineer they would get up and go talk to the structural engineer and say hey this i don't think this is going to work the way it's designed and so we could get things right the first time
1: so what i'm hearing is that by having this open lines of communication flowing both ways the typical hierarchy of like you said a drafter would never go to a structural engineer now they felt comfortable doing that because you had built relationships between them outside of the workplace, and they felt comfortable.
0: And, and it bust, we call it silo busting. So structural engineering was in a silo. Structural drafting is in a silo, each reporting out to their boss, reporting up into the company. What we started doing, our industry, structural would be in one part of the building, The production facilities people in another part of the building, purchasing would be on a different floor. Electrical engineers be out in a parking lot. Nobody (laughs) can talk to electrical (laughs) engineers, sort of like you IT guys. It's like you just put them out there. You got to deal with them eventually. Well, what we did is we busted those silos and we put everybody on a team in the same place. So the drafters, the production, the construction people, the purchasing all together to force that communication. But then when we got together in these parties, there was also that cross-communication to where they would know HR was actually an okay person. They could talk to HR about their problem. But that allowed us, by busting silos in our industry, most projects were designed, when I ran the numbers, seven times by the time they got started up. They were redesigned so many times due to lack of communication. I knew that if I could get better communication and only redesign two and a half times, I'd kill the industry. Yeah, and you did. And that's what we did. <laughs> exactly. All right. So open
1: up that communication. What's that next step?
0: Next one is to create a sense of team and get that sense of bonding. So in the Army, like if you think of the 101st Airborne Screaming Eagle, yeah, Screaming Eagle patch, they got a flag, they got a song, they, they marched in cadence. They do all of these trappings of a team. So what we did is we named ourselves Mustangers. So we got a cool name that everybody could say, hey, we're different than the rest of the industry. We're Mustanger. But we had a flag. We did all kinds of uh, what we call swag or goodies that would be branded. That would just appear on people's desks. Uh, Kids' toy boxes from going to skating parties or whatever would have all kinds of Mustang stuff in the toy box. And we were sucking the families in. We had Mustang the song to the locomotion. We had a Mustang dance at the parties. Everybody do this Mustang dance with their hoofs up. But creating that bonding and that sense of team, it became where anybody they would talk to in the industry that was really good, they would say, man, you need to get on this team. This is where it's at. And so creating that, that bonded sense of team was a big difference maker and we did what i call it new hire breakfast so when people would come in we'd have this breakfast with all the managers there it was normally at a club like a golf club so a nice place we'd hand out goodies and we'd go around and every person would stand up and say where they came from what project they were on and then i'd sort of riff off of that as the how our culture delivered that project for them. When a manager would talk, they would kid each other. So they'd see that, man, this was a connected management team. But we got them into that culture from like day one at that breakfast. And they would walk out with a bag full of goodies. They'd go home. They'd have a a PowerPoint slide that we didn't use, but we handed it to them so they could remember what we talked about. We'd cover all the culture points there. But creating that sense of team was a big differentiator for us. So
1: we've got that open sense of communication. We've created our sense of team. Where
0: do we go through? What do we go to next? The big thing for us was to create a repeatable process. So we were doing offshore platforms. Every one of them was different because the flow rate was different. It changed or whatever. My daughter started a company doing uh, tailored suits from scratch in Brooklyn, New York City. Nobody makes suits from scratch in the USA, but she got tailors together and they learned how to do this. But I found that one of their problems was a similar thing we had is if they didn't have checklists and good communication, they'd have to a lot of rework as they would do a suit jacket. What we wanted to do with a repeatable process is grab pieces of old projects. And at the kickoff meeting, I wanted to be 30 percent done with the project blows people's mind especially new people who come in you can't do this oh yeah i can so if i'm working for arco i'd pull a piece of texaco and a piece of conoco and a piece of exxon that was the same equipment i'm going to use we're just going to package it different but i already knew all the ins and outs of those packages so i wasn't letting my engineers start with a blank sheet of paper and so in every organization, there's what what I call an artsy part. For us, it was engineers. And they just wanted to des- design the next best, greatest thing. You were IT, so they didn't even want a beta test. They just wanted to go with the new prototype. And I said, no, I boxed the artsy part in to where, no, we're going to start with this stuff. And here's where you get to play. This part we don't have a good design on. That needs to be new for this client. But the rest of this is just blocking and tackling, so it's a repeatable process, and what it did is it guaranteed the outcome a lot more by having that repeatable process, so all of our projects started benchmarking in the top quartile of the industry, no matter who we worked for, and that just started, that got recognized, and in 95, 96, weird thing happened, all the major oil companies called up and I'm like pinching myself. They're saying, Bill, this is like Exxon, Conoco, Texaco. Bill, we need to mustangize how we do projects. <laughs> and I love that word. They're using Mustang eyes. We need to mustangize how we do our work or we're going to go out of business. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but they come and meet with us. We show them why they could not Mustang mustangize the way they work. And they said, oh, we're going to put together an A-team. We're going to give you our next super project and you're going to mustangize it. And so we did that for all of the major oil companies, moved each one of those projects to a top quartile. And then they were right. BP bought Amoco, Exxon bought (laughs) Mobile. We couldn't see it from down where we were on the food chain. They could see what was coming and knew what was going to happen. But that repeatable process is what they wanted.
1: It's interesting. I know that one of the things that helped Southwest Airlines rise to such prominence is they did a very similar thing. That every single process and procedure within their organization is systematized. system Is systematized. Again, is systematized yeah. And they've done it that way, which enabled them to be competitive in a pretty brutal landscape. So I, I love that you said that that having a repeatable
0: process. Did I love Southwest Airpl- Airlines. We called it the company plane, but they were so gung ho, so, and that culture. Uh, their culture is one that we wanted to mimic a compact computer in Houston was another super culture. And that's what we were creating. Those three companies, ours and those two were sort of setting the tone in Houston for culture.
1: We've gone through, we've gone through three awesome steps here to start incorporating culture in your business. Talk to us about the fourth
0: one. The fourth one is hard copy communication, which sounds crazy in today's time and age. But like I talked to you about the coffee bar, things can spiral up or spiral down from the coffee bar. So you can put your government regulations there. Or what I did, I put them in a dark hallway somewhere. So they were posted and I've put fun stuff at the coffee bar. But the other thing I did is I snail mailed the newsletter every month to the house. So the spouse and the kids are seeing the fun pictures, seeing what's going on in the company. And it's really connected them in. I had spouses say, man, I didn't know they had international offices. I want to travel internationally. And the mustanger would come in and go, I'm getting pressure from home for such and such. (laughs) But that meant that it was working, but hard copy communication. When you would come into our garage, there were these cardboard or wood cutouts of cowboys saying slow down and all these fun signs. So a client coming in or a supplier coming in, They're seeing, man, there's a different feel to this parking garage. There's a different feel walking into the building. So before they ever get to the most gung-ho receptionist they've ever met in their life, they're already feeling a cultural difference. And then walking down the hallways, meeting that receptionist, you could totally change it, but it's all hard copy. So in today's age, and you're an IT person, well, I, I think I'm an
1: IT person in remission a little remission. bit, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying. It, it's it's interesting, and I, I'm envisioning for for people listening to this, like even having digital displays on the wall that you can have that content be dynamic and
0: things like well, that. Well, you, Your vision and values are up there on the walls. People are seeing them and feeling them, and they're realizing that you're walking the talk. And so then they feel comfortable they can walk that talk
1: i love that and number five we actually talked about a little bit
0: yeah the sell while the shop is full uh like to tell you one other quick story on sell while the shop is full Sure, absolutely oh so, uh we got too much work one day and so we've got to turn down a couple of projects so we picked one project where i knew the project manager was wired in the industry could get it done so i called him up and said project manager i need to come down and see you so we could go down and Back then, you didn't have to go through security, so we just walked down the hall to his office, and he's got like ten people in his office at a conference table. And so I sort of motioned for him to come out in the hallway, and I say, "Pete, Pete Peterson's his name. I said, uh, "What you got going in there?" He says, "Oh, everybody's here for the kickoff meeting." And I go, "Man, we're here to turn the work down because we really can't take it on. We've got we were awarded too much stuff a few days ago." And he said, "You can't. You're the right guys for me." So it's like. It's time to dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. (laughs) Or my wife says, be a lion sales dog. And so I'm thinking really quick. I've got my project manager there who's well experienced. I said, well, if we have a good kickoff meeting, this is a very normal platform. And I've done a lot of cross training. So part of our open communication is cross training people. So my purchasing people were 70% as good as an engineer. I said, if we define the equipment, I'll just throw it into purchasing because they're available, they'll go out for bids. By the time the bids come in, I'll have engineers available, and we could do the project a little bit in reverse. He says, sounds like a plan. Let's do it. So I got to go back to my partner then and say, you can't send a sales guy to turn down a project. It's just not going to work. But that project we did for 60% of our budget. Wow. Because we were loaded. We just did what needed to happen. So that's selling while the shop is full. It makes your salespeople, they're always happy in front of clients because they're not begging for work. They're talking about fun stuff, and it makes you different. So that was just a little bit more on selling no, while the shop good. is that, full. That,
1: that's awesome. And uh, the sixth one to know is continuously recruit top talent, which sounds self-evident, but obviously uh, it isn't because <laughs> you found otherwise in the industry. Well, that,
0: the industry is wired, Uh I heard it through the grapevine, that song. There was a a grapevine through the drafting room where if you're close to your drafters, you know what's happening in every engineering house in Houston. And there's a 100 of them that you're competing with. So we would know what was going on. But recruiting and finding top talent, we're, we're a horsey company called Mustang Engineering. So we came up with what we called Operation Horse Thief. (laughs) and and that's identify the horses and other companies and go get them so at that new hire breakfast we would be thanking these people for choosing mustang because there's a hundred engineering firms trying to get the best people and then we'd say who are the five best people you know in the industry and that would they'd go on our list that was operation horse safe we'd get those names it was really fun after about 15 years i had a electrical drafter at the new hire breakfast and said who are the five best electrical engineers you know in the industry and he said they're all here that's why i'm here now (laughs) so it didn't work with that person but what you're doing is you're trying to find people that have your dna and so if people could move at our pace and work at our pace and they're saying this person is a That's better than any interview because they've lived your DNA and are saying, this person has the DNA. They're just being squished over where they are. You're going to free them up when they come into your organization. But we also needed to high grade in good times and bad. uh, If you read American Icon about Alan Mulally changing Ford Motor Company, it's a really good book. We were a matrix organization to where people had two bosses, a technical boss and then a project boss. He changed Ford Motor Company to a matrix, which I thought was huge. We grew that way. He had to change it. But what bugged them is they went through the big downturn, changed everything around. Everybody was gung home. As soon as they started making money, the silos started coming back in. They were forgetting how to just make it happen. And he said, man, how could we... Stay lean in the good times like we were in the bad times and one of our reasons for success is we were able to stay lean in the good times because there's always going to be another downturn it's going to keep flip-flopping but we found that some of our old-time mustangers weren't increasing their computer skills we were hiring new people in it were way better than our current people so we offered them classes the ones that wouldn't take it we said I know you've been here 10 years, but you no longer match us. You've got to go. They would go find a job, and many of them, two years later, would come back after they got those skills. But it was like a wake-up call. And so you you need to high grade. You can't just, hey, they've been here a long time, we're keeping them forever. They have to keep growing with the company, or you've got to flip them. But I think that continuous recruiting, we had a list of target people. We were what I would call a talent magnet. We had the best projects. People wanted to come in. They wanted to join our team. So, in some ways, cases we could screen and pick. But during some times when we were having to grow fast, that you had to have those lists to get that DNA coming in. But it's huge. Good times and bad. In bad times, we we're still hiring and letting people go. But really good people come available in the downturns. You got to grab them when you can. Oh, it makes a lot of
1: sense and we're we're close on time but we we do okay. have we do have time to talk about that seventh step so talk to us about the that the
0: seventh one is to give back so what happened to us is once people loved the company had that extra energy they wanted to go out into the community and a lot of people would come in and say hey I'll run this I'll run that so we had volunteers but these charity endeavors Again, we're mixing all kinds of people and busting silos when they would be out there. But also, had the like, secretaries and drafters that would run and organize something, and a manager would go, That person's got more skills than I thought. And that secretary would get moved up into purchasing, or that drafter would get moved up to lightweight engineering. So it's like what goes around comes around. The people were putting that energy in, helping the community in some way. And we worked for 30 or 40 different charities. But it also came back. We'd also meet people through those charities that we'd end up bringing into the company. So it was good for the community, also good for the culture and the organization, but big piece of Mustang. I love it. Bill,
1: I know this book is forthcoming, but tell us where people can find out more about it and then eventually sign up and
0: pre order. Well, the, the thing that we're working on most right now is the podcast. So Culture Code Champions podcast dot com. This is the best way. And that's going to be like the umbrella for everything to connect into the book, connecting to me and know what's going on. Outstanding. for those of you in the car or at the gym, we're going to have everything Bill Higgs, including
1: the links to his podcast in the show notes and in the daily helping app available in iTunes and Google Play. Bill, this has been an outstanding <laughs> 42 minutes of my life. I, I have greatly enjoyed connecting with you. As you know, I ask all of my guests who come on my show a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like the audience to walk away with after hearing our
0: conversation today. I really like people to beware of incrementing to a bad place. Every 12-year-old never imagines that they're going to be a, out of shape 40-year-old, or a smoker, or a drinker. You increment to these negative places. Organizations increment to a place they don't want to be, but you have to be conscious of it. And so think about what you're doing in your personal life, in your business life, and make sure that you're not incrementing to a place that you wouldn't want to be. Set those goals and then work towards those. I love that. Bill, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming
1: on the show today. I loved having you. Enjoy it. Was fun. Absolutely. And I want to thank each and every one of you as well who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are. And post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.